0: Yeah friends
1: only want to talk business I got expenses when things is expensive I got expenses when
0: is expensive I have been reading out of the war and now me shutting out nine stars just when it rain and a force and I'm ready for some and I been out all the war and now me shutting out nine stars Hey welcome to this special audio version episode of put that coffee down my name's Kevin Hill I'm your host Uh, For the next few minutes as we talk, should you become a freight agent? And what's the difference between a freight agent and a freight broker? What are, you know, besides one's a 1099, one's a W-2, what should you be looking for? Who should be a freight agent? Who shouldn't be a freight agent? And um, how do you turn yourself in, you know, into an entrepreneur uh, if you want to? So I'm joined today with the the host of the Freight 360 podcast,
2: Nate Cross, and Ben Kowalski. How are you guys doing today? So good, Kevin. Thanks for having us on. Looking forward to it. Good. Same here. Doing well. So let's start with you, Nate. Give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been in transportation and logistics. We're well, really in, in the third-party side of it. Uh, for about seven or eight years now, I, I started off with a company called Logistic Dynamics, or LDI, in Western New York. It's a fairly larger sized agent based brokerage. So that's really been my bread and butter for my career and uh, made a made a move over to Pierce for a while logistics uh, in early 2020 to head up the agent division there. So um, that's really been my focus since day one in the private sector has been with the 1099 model with independent freight agents. So Ben and I joined forces last year as well to really uh, kick freight 360 into the next gear and and, you know, get a lot of good content out there for all kinds of brokers, whether it's W-2s, 1099s, or those folks that decide to go out there, bet on themselves 100% and get their own authority. So that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. And, and
0: it's it's great content. What you guys are, are producing right now is is phenomenal. Uh, enjoy your
1: podcast tremendously. How about you, Ben? What's your backstory? So my background, school was finance and accounting. I worked in banking and finance for the first part of my career. And then I worked for one of the larger brokerages in the country, one of the larger ones in North America. And um, then went into coaching and consulting, which I do full time now. So worked with another large consulting company after I left that brokerage. And then Nate and I joined up to where, you know, we put out a lot of educational content, a lot of free resources out of our website. And then we do a lot of coaching and consulting now. Um, And I think, you know, to kind of add, that's why Nate and I, I think really work well together. He spent the majority of his career working on the agent side I've spent the majority of mine working inside large companies, learning the bureaucracy and all those aspects. So good, two good opposing points of view throughout our career. It is the yin and the yang,
0: right? <laughs> it is, the, the, yeah. working with agents, you know, yeah. entrepreneurs and then with the, the big organizations a, as well. Um, so let's jump into it today. We are talking about freight agents. I know there's a lot of people with a ton of questions uh, about what exactly is a freight agent? What do you do? What can you expect? Um, when should I make the jump is, is one of the, the, the biggest questions. So let's start, let's start at the top and get a really good definition of the difference between a W2 freight broker and a 1099 freight agent.
2: Yeah, good question. So um, first of all, I'll give you something that they have in common that will kind of lay the groundwork. So what they have in common is they're uh, neither, Neither one of them is a licensed broker. Okay. So obviously the FMCSA is the one that issues the licenses for motor carriers and for freight brokers, freight forwarders, all the above, right? A W-2 employee of a brokerage and a 1099 agent for a brokerage are not licensed. They both represent that brokerage. Now, where they differ, a W-2 is a employee, right? So W-2, that's how the, the U.S. government identifies for tax purposes, what an employee is. Okay. Whereas a 1099 is also known as a independent contractor, right? So they are contracted, not employed, but contracted by the licensed brokerage company. Now you can be a W two or a 1099 for any size or shape of a, of a freight brokerage. There's not really a requirement there. Um, Although there tends to be uh, common traits among the different companies. So typically, to support an agent network, there's a different kind of back office and employment that would go on within the actual brokerage company. So they tend to be medium to larger sized organizations where W2, you could just, it could be one guy or gal that um, hires just an employee or a couple of employees. So um, that's the biggest difference is how they're identified. One is an employee and one is an independent contractor. <laughs>
0: One's an employee. One's an independent contractor. One gets a lot. You get benefits. You, you get a lot of tools to work with. Not so many tools as a, a ten ninety nine, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, by you know by law and the way that the the U.S. government has employment versus contract divided, a ten ninety nine contractor cannot be. Well, so we'll talk about agents, right? So a freight agent for a company cannot be furnished with office space. They cannot be, uh, you know, they can't have payroll tax withheld. They have to pay their own self-employment taxes on their own. It's typically done quarterly. Whereas the employee, they can be given an office, phone, computer, um, all kinds of tools that typically a contractor would be required to pay for on their own. So th- those are a lot of the biggest differences, not to mention pay structures, but you're absolutely spot on there.
0: So, so I, I see a lot of advertisements for, you know, joining, you know, recruiting freight agents. All over the place there's different commission splits usually it's 5050 or 70 30 right guys so what's really the difference between you know one you make a hundred dollars you keep 50 and you give 50 to the agencies what kind of support comes with that that what was what's the difference between the 5050 and the 70 30 and what can you expect
2: well I mean at, at face value it's gonna really determine what what the the commissions earned is, but there's a lot that goes into what a company will offer. So just to kind of break it down Barney style, when we talk 70-30 split or 50-50 split, what that means is whatever profits you produce. So I'm just going to give basic numbers, right? Let's say you made $100 profit on a load. Now that's obviously a small amount, but um, if you made $100 profit on a load and you're 50-50 split, you keep $50 as a commission and the company will retain the other $50 as their profit. If it's 70/30, the agent would make $70 and the organization would retain $30. Now, um, like you said, you'll see a lot of advertisements out there. You'll see 50/50, 60/40, 65/35, 70/30. Some will even say, you know, 75 or 80% they're going to pay out. Um, I, you know, the the longer I've been doing this, the the more I've seen companies fail by simply just trying to offer a high commission split and they think oh i'm just going to get all these agents in they're going to do all this work it's going to be you know it's going to be gravy and it isn't right because you have to figure out from a financial standpoint what it as a broker as a licensed broker how much do i actually have to pay out to somebody as an agent and still be able to retain profit and pay for all my operations in the back office so a lot of these companies that have offered 80% they don't exist 2 3 years later okay so I guess in a nutshell, the, you, would, you would expect the more that a company is going to be paying in commission, the less support they would be able to offer to the, the agent network. That's not always the case, though. Typically, what it'll look like is the more efficient a back office can run, the higher commission that could be offered out there. So, For example, the company I work for now, Pierce Worldwide Logistics, we have a very, very well-oiled machine. There's, there's a, um, you know, we have a, a very efficient running back office. So the job that I do right now, and we can pay a 70-30 split, at my previous company where there were seven or eight of us in that same department, right? we couldn't always offer a 70% split to all of the agents that were out there because there were so many more employees to run. It wasn't, it wasn't as efficiently run as a back office. So um, that's not to say that they're not doing it right or that they're doing it wrong. It's just that they have a different business model. They're looking for folks that uh, maybe require a little bit more hands-on and they need more agent development type folks in there to help groom some of these young agents that don't have a lot of experience. So you have to put more bodies in seats to help groom and train these folks up. So at the end of the day, you know, if you are a super stellar broker that is entrepreneurial and just wants to hit the ground running and doesn't need a whole lot of support day to day, you're going to be able to get a higher commission split. If you need some mentorship, some grooming, a lot of help and your book of business is not really developed yet, you're you're probably going to still have an opportunity to become an agent, but that's going to come with a cost of how much commission you'll actually earn percentage-wise if that makes sense.
1: And let me ask you this Nate cuz we we've talked about this quite a bit as you know, we've people have been, you know, referred to us or that we've met and talked through as we've been working together. Where do you see that kind of line is? Do you have a line drawn where you're like, hey, your book needs to be doing this amount for you to get certain amount? Like, what are kind of the benchmarks you use when people are talking to you? Like, hey, I've got some customers. How much is too much? And where do you draw those lines?
2: (laughs) It's a funny question because people, you know, I talk to a lot of folks that are interested in becoming agents and they often ask, after I tell them, you know, hey, you're not really there yet, they'll say, well, how many customers do I need to have? Or what do my sales need to be at? How many loads do I have to do? And it doesn't matter how many customers you have. It doesn't matter how many sales you have. It doesn't matter how many loads you move. Brokers can operate and get paid based on the amount of profit that they produce, right? So what, and, and it's not even just profit. It's how quickly are your customers paying their invoices for that profit to be actualized or realized by the organization, Right. So um, as far as profit, you know, typically folks will look at how much are you doing in gross profit per month. Now, again, that gross profit is simply your AR minus your AP. So your customer sales minus your carrier pay. So total gross profits in a month. Most companies will tell you if you're not at at least $6,000 in a month, you're probably not ready to become an agent. And it simply comes down to the fact of look at what their paycheck's going to be, right? Even at a 50-50 split, if you do 6K a month, you're making three k a month yourself in commission, thirty six thousand dollars a year, before they start paying their taxes and everything. Is that really a sustainable long term career for somebody? Um, to start off, perhaps it could be, but long term, if they haven't shown growth and any kind of success track over the previous twelve months or so, you know they're probably not going to succeed any further. Especially if they're just working on their own. So, me personally, I like to look at someone that's doing. At a minimum, eight to ten thousand dollars in monthly gross profit, and I like to see how they've trended over the previous twelve months. Uh, A lot of companies will call this validating a book of business. So whether that is a you know, hey, let's take a look at your commission statements from the last couple of months or last quarter, or you know, your last completed year, Uh, it could be running on any kind of analytics numbers that they have from their TMS. And this can be difficult too because sometimes. Um, they might not be able to produce reports on their own because they don't want their previous or current employer or brokerage to to be notified that they're running reports. It's like that's kind of a red flag. Why is this person running all their numbers and then emailing them out or whatever the case might be? Um, but I, I always say, you know, I would love to see at least a year or two in the business because they've had enough experience to learn what works, what doesn't work, how to handle a, just a variety of different hiccups and hurdles that come Day to day as a broker, right, and also to see those those metrics as far as their gross profit per month.
0: So there's there's a few interesting points in there, right? You know, how much how much business or gross profit do you need to produce to 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 think about becoming an agent? And is three thousand good or bad? It really depends, right? I mean, if if that, that might be a good starting point yeah I, I, I can tell you what after running businesses myself uh, starting out and being able to earn you know three thousand dollars on a split um, w- instead of starting your own freight brokers you're not paying yourself for two or three years yeah because of all the overhead and the growth and the financing uh, if, if that's where you're gonna start and and you have confidence that, that you can build that up from there. That's not a bad place to start. It, now, if that's your end, three thousand. I don't know where I'm going to go from
2: here. Yeah, probably not so well. Right. Right. And I, so here's what I want to do too, is uh, Ben. I want to ask you this. So think about those same numbers, right? Six thousand dollars a month. We'll just we'll make it an even. We'll say they're doing fifteen hundred dollars a week. You've worked in the W two big box brokerage
1: world, right? Yep. Would that be considered a successful broker who's doing no. one or fifteen hundred a week? Probably not. No. And it's funny. I was just going to interject that. I'm like, here's what this looks like from the W-2 side, right? So for a big company that is going to provide all the resources, they're going to provide all the training, the the hiring and everything else, right? In your office space. Usually the big brokers are to maintain, and there's like different, like I kind of call them like gates. Like you have your six month evaluation, you have like your three quarter evaluation and your one year. Um, Your first evaluation is if you as a new broker are creating opportunities, you'll make it six months. I mean, you're putting the activity in, you're getting, you know, rates to quote, you've got customers that are interested, you'll make it that far. But you know, your third quarter, you got to be doing at least 1500 to 2k a month total gross profit. But by the time you're at your end of your first year, the The benchmark, and it, it it varies a little based on like how how you're working and your hustle and whatnot, but it's it's about four k a week. I mean, it's it's in the middle of three to five a week, so that puts you twelve to fifteen thousand a month in gross profit to keep a job. I mean, if you're yeah. on the bottom end, they'll help you, and you'll probably get some customers. You'll buy yourself some time, but if you aren't able to really Build that amount of a book of business, and I'd say a year and a half, you will no longer have a seat somewhere.
2: Yeah. So, and that's what I wanted to piggyback. And, and, nor would you want one, actually.
0: What's What's
1: that? that? Nor would you want one either,
0: because you're probably going to be pretty miserable.
1: You'll be miserable and you'll be broke because most of those companies have a structure where you're going to get a base of about 40 grand a year, we'll say. And it changes a little bit depending on your state and your city. But we'll say from there, right? That's. (laughs)
0: <laughs> a busy guy
1: yeah so i and i lost my train of thought in the middle of it um yeah sorry Four. yeah 4k yeah, we, you're
0: gonna get paid 40, 40 K, K, you're gonna perform
1: yeah you're getting if you're getting paid you got to perform you got a base of 40k but some of them have a draw that you have to pay back some of them don't have a draw but if you're not above that you're literally not making commission and usually those base salaries are below what you could live on to be honest. Yes. In, in, in so,
2: city. I want to hop in. So the 12 to 15 K it's funny. That is the, the folks that tend to succeed like 95% of the time or, or higher in the agent world, they're at that 12 to $15,000 a month level. So, cause you got, again, do the math on it. If you're, you know, if let's say you're doing $15,000 a month and you're on a 70, 30 split, you're making north of $10,000 a month in commissions, right? You're making a six-figure income. You've made it. You've got a, a sustainable, sizable book of business at this point. Um, so I, I always encourage folks that 10K is a huge milestone. I think that's when you can say, like, I've, I've made it. I've got my book of business where it needs to be. I can, I can make that transition over to becoming an agent. And you got to also consider, too, whenever you move a book of business from one company to another you should expect some level of attrition to happen with customers. And that might be you lose an entire customer because either, you know, they're just not going to move with you because they're contracted with that previous brokerage. Um, or maybe number two, there's another agent at your new company that already is working with that customer and they've been granted a protection on that customer, which means that no other agent can prospect or work with them to create any kind of internal conflict.
0: You're just bringing up too many good questions. I, I can't <laughs> follow. all I, There's like four that I want to ask all at the same time. But before we get there, because I have a lot of them written down, so I'm not going to forget those. Yep. Let, let's talk about, because, you know, we, we all work with small brokerages, people who are just starting out in the industry, uh, people who are, you know, new to the industry and they're trying to become a freight agent, which is very difficult because we all know the learning curve. What's another business model that I find people are attracted to because it sounds really easy or I mean, simple, I suppose, or or very lucrative is to get authority with very little experience and then recruit people to be agents for you. Yeah. Do you guys run into that? Because some people ask me about that and I'm like,
2: yeah, that
0: just doesn't sound like a very good idea.
2: Here's what's funny is um, I've had a lot of people that become an agent that had their own authority in the past and tried to just build an agent program from the ground, right? From the ground up. And there's a couple of problems there. Um, and a lot of times they were either a W-2 before that, or they were an agent before they went off and tried to do it on their own. The first problem is they don't know the first thing about running a business, Okay. It's one thing to be self-employed and own your job as a 1099, but it's a different thing to run a business and have to handle all the back office that goes along with it. So, that's the first problem. The second problem is they don't know how to run an agent program, let alone the business itself, right? So now you're not only trying to move your own freight, you've got to manage other 1099s within your organization and you've got to you've got to make the hard decision of do we need to deny credit on this customer? because they're paying too slow or maybe they have cl- too many claims on them or maybe the agent themselves is a pain in the butt to work with, right? They're talking back to everybody or what should be a two-minute phone call takes an hour every single time that they call the owner of the company or one of the, the higher-ups and that takes away from productivity overall, right? You got to think about it. So um, for example, at the last company I was with, there, like I said, there was eight of us and that um, that agent, you call it agent development, right? It's you get people recruiting, onboarding, training, developing folks, right? Uh, making sure they stay on track and they hit their goals that they set for themselves. So those eight people were spread across, um, you know, anywhere, let's say 150 agents, right? So you've got that, you know, that spread there now, um, right now, myself, I, I'm one person that runs my agent division. We've got about 30 to 40 agents, right? So I don't have the time to, you know, spend an hour every single day with each of my agents. So there's a level of, of selectiveness when it comes to who is the right person to bring on. They have to be a self-starter because if they're going to get paid 70% commission, they need to be worth 70% commission. They have to, they got to have that book of business and it's got to be a healthy book of business that has good margin, right? Because there's only so much meat on the bone in any of these transactions, right? Costs, we need to be paying fast enough because we're paying commission out to our agents before we even receive Payment from the customer. A lot of times, you know, customers are on net thirty. We pay on invoice, so there's at least a thirty day on average gap to collect that money. Um, so, people that have gone on their own and try to start this this agent model, there's a lot more that goes into it than they think, right? You've got to know who are the right kinds of people that you want to spend your time working with, right? And who are the right customers? Who are the customers we have to tell them, hey, we're going to fire your customer for you if you don't do it yourself. So, sorry to be That's long-winded it. on that, but. But this
1: topic, I I, was was laughing as he was asking it. I was kind of laughing as we're going through it because, I mean, we have a large Facebook group and I spend time in different, like all of us, answering questions and you see what's out there and you see so many people going, well, I got my brokerage license. And then they start calling and they're like, well, this is hard. I don't like rejection. And they went, wait a minute. Other people have agents. I can avoid doing all of the difficult stuff and just jump right to being rich. Well, this sounds awesome, right? It's, my dad had this saying it's that it's like everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Like everybody wants everything, and they look for ways around it. And the reality is, is like they're very difficult. The analogy I always use: I'm like in any other industry, you would never think to open the business when you learn the industry. Like you wouldn't start by opening a like carpentry shop, when you learned how to be a carpenter, you would be an apprentice, right? You learn the business. And then you learn how to run the business of running a, you know, construction company after you learn how to use the tools. But for some reason, because there's such a low barrier to entry, I think people just assume that they don't need to understand these things. They get in over their head. And the truth is, that was a lot of the reason Nate and I put a lot of this stuff out there is because, the information is there. Like there are easier, I don't want to just say easier ways, but there are more effective ways to learn this industry that don't involve learning how to do every aspect of running a business at the same time.
2: Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, there's a subjective side to a lot of this too, right? So outside of numbers and, you know, margin and days to pay, there's that personality type that I look for as well with an agent. And I I kind of relate to this. Is this the kind of person, and I'm talking about a prospective agent, right? Is this the kind of person that I would want at a family party or around my group of friends? And I will tell you that a lot of companies, I think that I've succeeded in this realm because I have stuck to that methodology when recruiting and growing an agent program by surrounding myself with people that I would let into my circle, right? And it's gone as far as I've had agents that have become my friends, very good friends. I had one that was at my wedding a few years back. I'm going to his wedding later this year, right? Those those are the kind of relationships that you establish where you can go and, like, in my case, when I have an agent that I'm with in person – can I go have a beer with them and a steak and talk about sports? Cause that and to me, those are the kind of people that I want to hang around with and spend my time with. And we're going to build a good rapport with one another. And when they need help, I'm there to do that for them. The folks that are just argumentative and they complete, they always remind me that I'm 1099. I'm not your employee. Well, you've already, uh, sounds like your, your soul's already out the door. Why don't you take your body with it? So um, it's just, you know, there's a, there's a subjective personality that some companies, they, they tend to have similar personality types within their agents. And that is great. And every company is going to be different depending on who's wearing that hat of steering the ship for the agent program.
1: And and I think that's important too, right? And I, I don't want to go super long on this, but it's like when I'm referring somebody to Nate or to any agent program, what I always suggest people look for before they go is like, ask who is running the agent op side because there's so many different aspects of freight that you could be moving. Like maybe your book of business is in vans and you ship household goods or whatever. And now you got a customer in flatbeds. You need somebody like Nate to be able to run this stuff past and go, hey, I want to make sure that I'm booking the load correctly, that I've got all the right details. To me, that's why you're getting the 70%. That's- it's, it's having that support there. No matter where you are in your brokerage career, everybody's going to have questions. And I think it's more than just, hey, let's, we've got our license. Now we can bring on agents. That's the value that I would be looking for if I was going to work as an agent. And
2: the other thing I want to add to that too is if, you know, like you said to start off, Kevin, you see these advertisements all the time of, you know whether it's on a load board or wherever, they're advertising for agents. If you're, if you're getting recruited by a company, If that recruiter's only job is to recruit, that's a red flag, in my opinion, right off the bat, okay? Because all they care about is to get you in the door, and then they don't care about your success afterward. Maybe they'll get some commission on you, whatever. But if that person is truly vested in you, that's an entirely different situation. It's the same in any kind of sales world, right? I always – I hate it when I sign up for a new – anything right and the salesperson is then gone and they're like i'm going to transition you over to our customer success team it's like what like i signed up because i liked you and i had a good vibe with you and now you're gone and on to the next one so i think that's a, a big big pointer in a lot of these agent programs and i think a lot of companies have have shifted because they've they've you know agents talk and agents move from company to company and they will They'll give that feedback if it's solicited, and, and they'll say, "I like working with Nate. He brought me on. We have trust. He understands my book of business. And it was it took me a year to sign on with him before I finally made that decision. And I want to continue to work with him. And that is where companies will succeed is to ke- keep that continuity for the entire duration of that agent's tenure with the company.
0: You're exactly right. I mean you have to you have to have a lot of trust if you're going to go out and be an agent with a, a certain company, right? Uh, whoever it is, you have to be really careful because there are some fly-by-night agency companies out there. I, I've always been fascinated with the freight agent model. And and part of that is if I can go out there and book freight and cl- and keep 70% of that gross profit and not have to do any of the back office work. So what I don't understand is if I'm a W-2 or, or maybe not, but I, I do have experience. I know how to go. I'm good at it. I, I know how to go out there. I got some carrier relationships. And I'm ready to take that next step. And and I, I, I do see this a lot. People want their own authority. And all that means to me is I want my own headaches. I'd rather lay off, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to own the the non-fun parts of running your own business. Because yeah. those will drain you away, they'll take up way more time. And at the end of the day, it's gonna cost you more than 30%. To actually do it yourself because just just the general financing of growth, yeah. of paying out of the float, right, APAR, is enough to drive anyone insane. So I, I'm going to ask you both, why would anyone, especially if you're strapped for cash, try to go out and get your own authority if you're good, just go be a common agent and do a 70-30 split.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the reason a lot of people do it is it's an ego thing. They're like, I can do this on my own. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to run my own business, which, by the way, you, you can do as an agent because you can build mm-hmm. an agency. What they always fail to realize, and you or you hit the nail on the head, Kevin, is the, the back office. and the, the accounting part is one of the biggest parts of it. Right, It costs money to finance the transaction whether that is cash flowing with your own liquid assets, paying a factoring company. And oh, by the way, it takes time to invoice customers, to pay carriers and sift through BOLs and scale tickets and PODs and invoices. And and what happens when there's a claim and you've got to work with insurance companies and adjusters? And what happens if a customer doesn't pay their bills on time and you got to start doing the collections process? There is way more that goes into it. That's why these Agent-based companies have to be a medium to larger size organization because they can scale it. They've got folks that are specialized just in ARAP, just in claims, just in credit approval, just in carrier vetting, right? And this is why, you know, you see these folks fail and then they're like, I don't get it. Why didn't it work? Well, there's all these other things you have to think about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the cash flow is a really big thing. I, I think it is. It, it's a, I think the Let's desire.
0: In. I, I think you might be going here anyway, but I'll serve it up for you. I, well, let's say I'm an Asian. I'm doing 10 grand in, in gross gross profit, right? Or, or yeah, I, that, that's, I'm that's i not an Asian actually. I have my own MC and my own authority. I'm doing 10 grand. I bring in the, the deal of the century where now it's going to be 30,000. I'm going to triple. Well, the, the gross revenue on that is what you're paying out and trying it's to collect. Great. You're tripled. The the float, which is it could be enormous. It could be a million dollars a month. I'll give you I'll give I you know some real
1: numbers. Saying. Right when I was a W two, I remember when I flipped one of my largest customers from January two thousand seventeen to wait December seventeen. By the beginning of February of two thousand eighteen, I had to increase my line of credit by two million dollars to manage that. So yes, profit went up. Yes, I was making a lot, but the reality was. If I needed to fund that as a small business owner, I would not have been able to. I would have taken a small piece of that, probably 10 to 15%, and I would have had to work my way up to it over a year or two is a first drawback. The second drawback that we didn't talk about is when you jump over the agency model and say, I just want to go W-2 to own my brokerage, the other thing you're not taking into account is... It takes time to establish credit as a business. So even if you've got the freight and you're great at that and you were able to book trucks at your old, the other place you worked at, guess what? You've got to start establishing credit. That takes anywhere from six months to a year. And you will have a significantly smaller portion of any available carriers that are willing to even take your loads. That's, that's another uphill battle. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of these little things that just – and you know where I think it comes from? And Nate and I were talking about this earlier with Trey and possibly the TIA was the fact that people that work in the W-2 model, they only see two numbers, the top line and the carrier number. And every other expense is, just doesn't come up. You don't think about it. You get paid out of those numbers. Everything after that is an afterthought. And they just keep thinking, boy, this company makes so much money off me. But they never see the line items, right? They never see the Mm -hmm. the dollars. Like you said, when you say, I think headaches, all I think are, I need to understand and wrap my arms around and facilitate all of the expenses. None of that is fun. Who likes paying bills all day? Because so, that's oh, the yeah. job you signed up for. You're trying to get payments all day, yeah. right?
0: You're not selling. You're trying to collect money. You're yeah. trying to get financing. You don't have time to build your book of business. So Collection I'll give you an example.
2: All right, here's some real numbers. This is, this is a true story. So about four years ago, um, we had an agent is at a previous company and... His agency did between 30 and 40 million dollars a year in top line. He had good margin, it was like over 20%, customers paid fast, it was like within 15 days. It was a it was a beautiful um that's a beautiful story for an agency, right? They're great customers, fast paying, high margin. That's what you want all day long. He's like, "I'm going to go out on my own, get my authority, and I'm going to run this myself. I'm going to get agents, I'm going to get employees and it's going to be so good." When he, when he crunched the numbers, and even with high margin and fast-paying customers, he still needed to have a $5 million line of credit or liquid cash to avoid having to factor. Now, imagine the, the cost. Say you got, you know, even like a, say you did 2% factoring fee for $40 million a year. That's a ton of money that you're paying out. He failed. He ended up being an agent for a competitor about six months later. So not to mention, when you have a brand new authority, good luck getting carriers to want to work with you. Right. And like same thing with credit, all that stuff. It is just uh, it's it's a shiny object that people need to really peel the layers back on and see what's down in the core of it.
0: And going to the next, this is a good segue to the the, the next topic is not only do you have to do all that, you have to go shop around for technology, for a TMS. You have to worry about the operational side
1: of that.
0: uh, And that takes just that's not fun either. Now, that's ballpark not a fun it.
1: part of the job. Kevin, ask Nate, just ballpark, by this point this year, how many hours do you think you have just in evaluating TMSs? Just that alone, that task alone that he just mentioned. You want me to answer that? Yeah, ballpark. I mean, I know I've you got, got to- another one tomorrow for an hour.
2: Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it has to be like 80 hours. And th- this mm-hmm. is... This is well. That's just actually spending time on the phone and doing demos. There's a lot more that goes into the research and me playing around stuff myself and getting feedback from our actual users and accounting folks, brokers, all that stuff. Um, There are so many TMSs out there. They some of them cost a lot of money and they offer a lot of cool tools. Some of them are cheaper and don't have all the solutions, which cost you more time. But it is a big decision and. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. And this is, you know, we, I started looking at this for, for Pierce Worldwide early in 2021, and we're not even looking to launch it until January 1st, 2022. So I started with, you know, almost a 12-month lead time to transition from one system to the next, and it has been headaches, just nightmares of the amount of time. Plus, I'm yeah. trying to manage a division of agents, right? Um, mm-hmm. and you got to try to make everyone as happy as possible. Your accounting folks like one system, your brokers like another system, the people that do claims want to know, well, how's the claims management in here? So there's just a lot that goes into it.
0: It is. It's, it's a nightmare. So I, when we we're talking about becoming a freight agent, what are some of the tools that the, the agency or the parent company is really expected? What are the table stakes and what's you know kind of the, the premium uh, service or tools that, that you're allotted and what can be allotted?
2: Yep. Um, so tangible would be your, well, I guess it's a digital tangible, but your TMS, right? That's usually the one big thing that you're going to receive and be able to use from your company that you are an agent for is going to be their TMS. It could be a proprietary one that they've developed themselves. It could be a licensed version of like a, you know, there's a lot of bigger companies out there. McLeod, LJX, MercuryGate, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so they're going to usually provide you with that. And that is typically, that's going to be usually the extent of it when it comes to Phone, internet, computer, any other tools like a CRM, those are all on the agent to furnish themselves with business cards, merchandise, like, you know, swag bags for customers. That's all on the agent. Um, if you're an employee, obviously it's a different story. They're going to give you all that stuff.
0: So uh, so it's just it's really a TMS. Uh, load boards, you have to go do your own yeah, well, load yeah, boards. So that's another thing too.
2: Some will provide you load boards. Um, some won't, uh, they make you pay for them. I guess when I said TMS, I would consider that that's integrated in for okay. any, any, you know, company. The they're going to have your, your DAT and truck stop post everywhere. Um, select us If you do expedite, uh, any of those other various smaller niche boards, um, they're going to offer some sort of integration. Some companies will make you pay for your license monthly. Some will offer it to you. Um, Some will offer it to you, but then charge you if you need additional licenses for employees or sub agents. Um, Some companies will give you free usage of GPS tracking. Some will charge you per load. I mean, that's the, that's one of the things when you're, if you're looking to become an agent or switch companies and be an agent for a new or a different company, those are the questions that people need to be asking is what am I really being provided? Now the untangible is going to be the, the level of support, right? I always think it's funny when like there's a company out there that offers 75%. I see their ads all the time. I know how much they spend. I got friends that work over there. And the support that they get is email only. You call somebody, you're getting a voicemail. They will respond to your email when they can, but they will not pick up the phone 95% of the time. That is why they can offer you 75%. Um I don't, you know, I don't operate that way. I'm a huge believer in do it by email if you can, but sometimes you gotta hop on the phone for two minutes to talk through something instead of going back and forth with 12 emails. So there's a lot of untangibles as well.
0: So another another thing that you might not expect, you might not think about, and I'm gonna ask Ben this, because he knows the big company, the big structure. You know, if you're in a top 10, top 20 3 pl and you're just out of college and you show up and you're like, I'm gonna go get all these accounts and you realize all the really great accounts Someone already owns someone's, you know, probably the guy driving the Porsche. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the 28 year old driving the Porsche yep. and, uh, and and gambling heavy is the one who owns that that blockbuster account. So so if you're coming into an agency, uh, you know, how does how, how do you navigate that? If your book of business kind of conflicts with other people.
1: And you know what? I honestly don't know the question of that. And I'm going to have to defer because I mean, like, yeah, like, well, I mean, at the big three PLs, the way I always looked at was my biggest barrier to entry to really making it big once I got my feet underneath me was exactly what you said. I'm looking Mm -hmm. at 5000 people, right, literally that are all going after everything freight in the entire market. And then you could only call the customers that you could get in your name, obviously, because you can't step on anyone's toes. And I would say probably the overwhelming majority of my time was spent trying to get prospects in my name to be able to call, let alone getting good at the job of calling and closing and getting free.
0: So, Benjamin, that 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 leads me to something, and we'll get the real answer from from Nate. But I'm going to have to have you back on to do another podcast. To talk about that strategy because that that's that's tough, you know. You're coming in, mm-hmm. you know. You can't go after Kraft or Walmart or you know people who are posting huge numbers. You you have to go find your niche, I guess, right? Your, your niche or yep. where you're going to land and build it up from there. And there's a, a there are strategies for that. I think a lot of uh, young freight brokers who are new to the industry, in large or you know medium to large uh, freight brokerages, are, are kind of asking themselves. Uh, right now, but uh, Nate, when you were talking about you're going to take your book of business, there's some blacklisted. I, I guess that should be your first your first question out of the gate before it's anything else. It's,
2: yeah, I've I've had people where their first question is, "Can I use this customer and can I get X amount in credit?" If if so, let's talk. If not, I'm not going to waste your time. And that's a, it's it's not a bad place to start. So we call that agent saturation in the agent world. Okay. What that means is the more agents you have, the more customers are, you know, I guess you would assume that they're already protected or tagged or whatever you want to call them to, uh, to somebody else within the organization. So if you look at a company like a, like a CH Robinson or a TQL or an Integrity Express, Coyote, these are all larger W-2 modeled organizations where you you do have to spend time trying just to get a prospect in your name, let alone – be able to call them and, and close them and get them mm-hmm. on as a customer. Um, now the agent world, look at a company. I'm going to compare, I'm going to give you two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Pierce for a while, I told you 30 to 40 agents. Now compare that to Landstar that has thousands of agents, right? Not to mention those, some of those agents are so big that they have their own sub agents and they, those mm-hmm. sub agents have sub agents, right? Um, you, you can't just expect to go into a company like a Landstar and pick up Walmart. Or pick up Kroger, or you know, DOD, because I'm sure they've got somebody that's already working DOD freight. You go to a small to mid, or let's say a mid-size agent-based company, that saturation is going to be much much lower because you don't have as many people competing against each other. Now, you know, you 100 200 agents, you still really aren't running into it because think about how many shippers are really really out there. Um, Still, the big ones you'll probably run into and there is a strategy that some companies will use. Well, they 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 will say, "Okay, yes, you can use, you know, this this company." But the company is so large, they've got 50 branches. Every branch tenders their own load separately. They all invoice their load separately. So we can actually split up this account based on which branch you want to use and they can work creatively that way. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to you, you got to balance the can I have two agents working on the same customer or am I going to lose one agent because I'm letting somebody else in on their customer? You got to kind of balance that. Um, the way that I always I look at it right now is I love if I can love to give the customer the choice of who they want to work with. And I love to try and find a win win solution on that. Right. And sometimes that means agents working together and sharing some sort of commission. And they both they have that um you know, that that group effort, which leads to way more business for both of them than they could both do individually. Um, but I mean, I think, in the, like in the last I probably this year alone, maybe one or two times have I run into a, an, two agents that want to work with the same customer. One time I was able to make it work. The other time I had to say no because it was a small customer. So that saturation, but you're going to run out of that daily at a larger W-2 well, model. But
1: At the larger ones, the other problem is, so it's not just the existing customers, it's the prospecting list. So let's say you have 4,000 actual brokers, right? And let's say that out of those 4,000, you require every one of your brokers to be managing a prospecting list of 50 to 100 Now it's 4,000 times 100, and that's how many prospects are now protected. Now, all of a sudden, even though that's a very big industry and you can still find opportunities in it, and we can go into that in another episode, it then becomes really cumbersome to being able to find a lead.
2: And this is another reason, too, just really quick, why some larger agents will say, you know, I'm going to go out on my own if I get my own authority Because I can work with any customer I want to. I don't have to be told no by corporate for anything.
1: But guess what? Guess who's still going to say no? The real world and the fact that you can't get the financing by yourself with a business that has been open for three Mm -hmm. weeks to actually fund the customer that you couldn't work with at the big brokerage anyway. But no one ever really gets to that point. It's just hey, let's solve the one problem that seems to be preventing me from working with Walmart because I know that guy in my office isn't any better than I am at this job, and I should be making that money. And I think that's really why people just jump right over to it.
0: Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. You just think about that one problem. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I can go sell that. Well, that's great, but then you have to finance it. You have to – I mean, it's a headache. I mean, I I could only imagine – I, I just a float. You said two million dollars. Yeah, and it's and That's then the even, one we're not even getting big now.
1: Yeah, and it was like the number that always just jumped out of me. Coming from banking, I was a lender, right? And I went mm-hmm. to school for that. So I meant I remember every time I was talking like, "Hey, we need customer credit." I'm like, "This is a big number." And then I'm looking yeah. at the whole office, and I'm like, "This is a lot to manage." Like all of this credit. And then you hear, like you said, like another broker in the office and the rumblings and everybody's complaining about the one big seemingly only problem preventing everybody from being millionaires, which are getting leads into your name. So everybody just wants to jump ship and then start their own brokerage.
0: And I've had a couple customers at Carrierless that are no more because, you know, they might have a five to 10 person office Mm -hmm. doing really well, uh, but one customer doesn't pay.
1: You're done huge happened to two of our two clients we work with that I've coached with in the past year and a half. One was a smaller brokerage doing very well. They got hit for 400 grand and it was a decent customer. Something happened with their finances. They actually ended up getting paid. It was like a little bit more than two years, but can you imagine taking that large of a hit? Like most companies can't sustain that.
2: And there is, it's there's receivables insurance companies out there that will offer um, insurance on all of your credit lines, but it comes with a cost. They're not going to pay 100% of it, and they're going to tell you how much credit you can approve. You you now just yep. lost that decision-making ability.
0: You did, right? If you use a factoring company, they're going to tell you who you can extend credit to as well. So you've lost that, so you're not really in any better position than if you were an agent. Maybe you did get that book of business, uh, but you're still paying out You know, well more than that most people have cash on hand to do that. So it is financing. And it's it's what they say, drivers say with the accidents. It's not if, but when. When, yeah. When, when you get stuck with a bill from a customer, it's not if, it's, it's and when and how and much. how much, yep. And if you, you know, can't survive that, you can't survive it.
1: Let me pose this question to both of you guys. Is there any reason why anybody wouldn't go to the agent model? Because from my point of view, I never understood why you wouldn't, because I get why you can't take a W-2 book with a non-compete and the way things have been to go into your own, right? Like we're all aware of that and we can touch on that in a minute. But if you're an agent, I get the ability to go build my business, my agency. I don't worry about cash flow. I don't worry about back office. I don't worry about support. And if and when I want that other 30%, or as you phrased it, Kevin, want more of the headaches... Couldn't I do that anyway? Like, is there really any reason not to use that as an intermediary, even if you wanted to open your own I, shop? I think one of the the, the the more famous people in the industry that
0: did that, I, I, he did Ryan Schreiber's uh, podcast, is Kevin Nolan over at Nolan Transportation yeah, Group. He converted, I think, a land store. I, I think it was a land store agency into Nolan Transportation Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems like the, the most natural way to do it.
1: If you grow so big... yeah. And you can self-fund. Now, you can self fund. now you can, you can, you've got economies of scale. If you've got that amount of money coming in, like Nate pointed out, and we say on the show a lot, like the goal in factoring is to not have to factor. If you've got that large of an agency, you've probably learned the other back-end office of the business. You've got the ins and outs. You've made enough mistakes. You've lost enough money through different things that you could probably make that jump without too much of a hitch, I would
2: think. Yeah, I'll hop in here. So the majority of agents started off as a W-2 and they became an agent and they'll stay agent forever. The majority of, I guess, yeah, the majority of licensed brokers that are actually successful either started it from scratch and were one of the very few that made it and grew. And the other part of that majority would be a very large, successful agency that went out on their own. Um, but they were somebody that wanted to run a business and they didn't want to broker day to day anymore. They they loved the industry, but they're like, you know what? I'm burnt out. I've grown so large. I've hired sub agents. I've hired employees. I've hired administrative folks to help out, even though I'm an agent and I have a back office. I still need people to do my office administrative duties. Those are the folks that will succeed because they want to take that broker hat off and wear that business owner and that leader hat.
0: And a lot of times if you do get your own authority, even at that point, it, it, you're not a sole owner. I mean, you have to have partners and investors. You have to have a, a lot of different resources. There, there's very few people I think out there yeah. that has has done it all themselves because it's just too much time and money involved in the, in the working capital aspect of it to do it alone.
1: And even when it seems like these guys have, I can, I can tell you at least from my experience is the same as yours, Kevin. Even the folks that I've met that have been outstandingly successful in this industry have not gone it alone. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's just... There's too much.
0: There is just too much.
1: And the other thing I was going to say is like when people... I think when you're sitting there in your office and you're looking at all the money you're not making, right, is what brokers do, right? Like I get my 25 or 30 and they look at the 65 and the 70 that they're not getting, right? And they're starting to run through their head how they're going to get more of this. Just think, if you're listening to this, just think about all of the people that you've met that are in the back office, right? No matter the size of your company, whether it's three or 300 at the larger companies, all of those people, they're not sitting around doing nothing. And those are all of the jobs that you are basically contemplating taking in. At the exact same time, you're going to go jump out on your own, right? I
0: know, right? And and maybe the the, the, the worst, something that's even worse than doing it yourself is managing the people doing it themselves. Yeah. right? I, I, you know, and after running a business, I, you know, all the back office things, it's expensive to do. Yes. It is expensive to do. I would rather lay it off, outsource it. I mean, that's the reason why you have QuickBooks. That's the reason why you have a, a lot of different tools out there for, I mean, businesses certainly outside the industry is that you're going to outsource it? And simply, all you're doing is outsourcing, and I'll say it again: all the headaches. Yeah, and think because about if you're you having to worry about someone paying you four hundred thousand. Yeah, you don't want to worry about that. You don't no. even want to get that to thirty-two days or, or two days post, you know, due date. Right
1: then, you know. You're going to have a heart attack. Especially if you're – yeah, because you're betting your mortgage and your family's well-being on that check, right? Like there is no fallback. There's no, hey, we'll just wait and see what happens.
2: Think about this too. So let's say you started a – you got licensed as a brokerage and you've got some folks working, right? Um, What happens when – you know, Joe from accounting is sick or just stop showing up because he's had it. He's done. Well, guess what? Now you're an accountant. What happens if you're just by yourself or maybe you've got just a couple employees and you're sick? What are they, How's the business going to keep running? And that is that, what happens when one of your employees that you hire gets slapped with a non-compete or a cease and desist from their previous employer? I mean, this is the stuff that you have to think about that does not exist yeah. in the agent world the yeah. same way it does on your own.
0: And you know what? We haven't talked about non-competes. I don't know if we will because none of us are lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I will ask. I'll ask both of you this: If you're a W two, you want to be an agent. You're under non-compete. How difficult is it to, to, to take your customers because you really can't? And how difficult is it? Do you really have to think about growing a book, a business from scratch again? I mean, I, I, don't I will know, tell I've you. Never figured that out.
2: The larger the company that you're coming from the higher chance there is that you're going to have a huge headache. For example, TQL has an entire legal department that it is their job to find out where did John and Jill go after they quit last Friday. And we're going to search their LinkedIn. We're going to search their Facebook, their social media. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to search the load boards and look for the loads that they used to post those lanes and find out what phone number pops up. Is it their their old era code that we had on file? And what brokerage is it listed under? Now we're going to send a cease and desist once we can verify and boom. That's their main job. Smaller brokerage, they probably don't have the time or desire to put the effort in. Um, my, my biggest advice, if you've got a non-compete, first of all, like we said, we're not attorneys. Have an attorney look at it. Is it realistic? Does it hold any, uh, any, any grounds against you? There's an ethical side too. I always say just go. If you plan to leave because you have no upward mobility, talk to your management before you leave and try to leave on good terms. Hey, I'm not going to touch these customers. I've got some prospects that I'm just not able to work here because they're tagged to somebody else. And, um, you know, I wanted to move up in the ladder and I just, I can't hear. It's not possible. I want to go, I'm going to go work for another company. And you'll be surprised if you give that level of respect to somebody, they, they might wish you the best and say, good luck. Um, others might walk you out the same day and, you know, send you a certified mail that'll arrive a, the next day or two. That's got some legal paperwork in it. So it all depends. There's so many variables that go into the the non. There
0: are, and and you can go to FreightWaves.com and read about certain companies' policies, TQLs. Uh, we we have a couple of really good articles about uh, how far some companies can take it.
1: You can always move to California. <laughs> you can, yes. <laughs> there's always yeah. that one. There's a couple. So I think there's four or five right now that don't enforce. I think Wyoming was one. I mean, mm-hmm. you can Google it and take a look at it. But there are states that you can absolutely.
2: Well, I'll tell you, with TQL, I I was I was involved in a lot of their lawsuits at a previous company, and TQL. um, I don't want to get too big into it, but sometimes their goal is not to actually stop people, or not to not to get the money that they're trying to sue the employee for. They just want you to. They'll spend whatever it takes to get you to sit on the sidelines because they think if I can just, I'll spend two hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, but if I can stop this top five percent broker from brokering somewhere else. We're going to be able to keep that business. I don't. I don't care what you know how much we want to try and sue them for. I will just. I want them to sit out. Um, and I will tell you that they have won some of them, and there's been some that TQL has lost because their legal team drug it out. They dragged it out for so long that the judge said, "You're you're literally." You're not even trying to settle this at all or try have the conversation about it. You're just dragging it out to try and make that person's life bad. And I've seen a couple of them tossed out for that exact reason. So
0: I, I have two. And it, again, uh if you Google that, and, and TQL, um, oh, we, I think it was last year, we, we kind of went through their non-compete and what their, their legal strategy is. uh, I guess it still is probably. And uh, it's kind of scary. I mean, that's what I'll say about it. It's it's scary and it's designed to be scary.
2: Yeah. And some companies have learned like you mentioned Kevin Nolan before right from Nolan. I will tell you I've seen their non-compete change over the years and they have he's done or at least this company's done a very good job at sculpting their, at least the last time I saw it, their current non-compete to be very very reasonable. So in the past, I think it used to say like you can't work for two years anywhere in the United States and like, you know, judges are throwing that out. It's like, that's not even realistic, yeah. but if it's like, Hey, you know, you can't work for this long. Um, in, within these States or within this radius. Um, and then once you can work, just don't touch the customers that you had with us for another X amount of time. And that's, that is, you know, it's obviously held up better than the old one did. So people are catching on and learning what is reasonable and what is just trying to catch all and, just mm-hmm. it's nuts. Do you guys uh, do, you, do
0: you know freight agencies out there? And does Pierce, uh, you know, people who are really good salespeople, but they can't transfer their book of business, start from scratch?
2: Yeah. So I've um, I've had people that, and I can usually tell within the first one or two conversations with them, if they are if they were good enough to grow from zero to whatever they got to in two years and they're going to be willing to do it again from scratch and not touch any old customers, I'll, I'll take a chance on those people. And I would say I'm probably, probably batting seven fifty on that. So maybe 25% of the time it doesn't work out because they, they realize that ah, I don't want to be making hundred, 200 calls a day again. It, you know, it seemed enticing at the time, but you know, not anymore. I've had people that they, uh, they waited out there now and compete stayed in the industry in some relevant, uh, job, but you know, weren't directly competing. And then they came in full force and you know hit it out of the park and they grew even bigger than they were before. So yeah, I talked to a yeah, guy. I've taken folks on without a book in the past for that reason. Um, I would say they have a book, but they can't bring it with them. That's a non-transferable book of business. So, uh, but yeah, I have. But you know, the majority of the time, you want a nice transferable book of business because it's a lot. It's a lot easier, and it, it makes them happier when they see the fruits of their labor week one when they're getting commission on Friday.
1: I would say to add to that, I think you, kind of two questions there were some other ways to deal with non-competes and some of the wait-out periods. Um, I've, I've known a handful of people that have gone and done exactly what kind of Nate alluded to, like took another job, like dispatching loads. It was like a non-brokerage position. They mm-hmm. basically went to the, and they work, They all worked for large 3PLs. They went back and they said, look, like one of them had, you know, he had a couple kids and he's like, look, I'm just not able to make what I did before. And to Nate's point with he had kids, he's like, I can't, you know, work 14 hours a day anymore. Um, it won't be a good fit. What can I do? And they waived his non-compete to go be operations for two years at another company. And what, and I just talked to the, one of them last week. And then that guy went back into brokerage after he waited out his non-compete and the customer he went to work for became his customer. So he had a book of business that he acquired basically waiting on his non-compete, took them, and now he's back in brokering with the people that just employed him during his waitout period.
2: I was going to say, yeah, I've seen a lot of success where people, they'll leave brokerage, they'll go do like a consulting role in the traffic department for a, a big shipper, help them reduce a lot of their inefficiencies and educate that customer on how to work with brokers and motor carriers. And then when they're ready to, they'll go off and become an agent somewhere or broker again, and that's their first customer. So
0: That's a good plan. Yeah. that That is. Um, last question here. Last question. Red flags. Because we do see the advertisements we talked about a little bit. We talked about new people entering the industry and wanting to become agents. Uh, but all that aside, what... What are some red flags whenever you're 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 talking to a company that has an agent program? Uh, you mentioned a couple Nate, Uh but but what are some others that 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 you see out there that kind of make you queasy?
2: Uh, how long have they been in business? Okay, I mean, I would say the the reputable agent based companies have all been around you know, close to at least 20 years, if not double that, right? You know, we've been around 40 years at Pierce. When I was with LDI, they've been around almost 20 years. Companies like Armstrong, Global Trends, they've been around for long enough that they know what works, they know what doesn't work. Uh, Also, how many agents? If they have no agents and they're brand new and just trying to start off, I mean, everyone's got to start somewhere, but that's going to require a lot more, you know, deep digging. Do you want to be their first, you know, you want to be the guinea pig, right? Um, I would also say, do they come across as trying too hard to recruit, right? $500,000 signing bonus or hundred percent commission for the first 90 days or, um, you know, Hey, we'll fly you in. And like, you don't even, you don't even know what my last name is yet. And you want to fly me in and what, you know, it's crazy. Um, it's so I've done when I first started off in recruiting years ago, I would, um, I would call, other companies that are agent-based brokerages and talk to their recruiting team. And I would, I guess, pose as, uh, as a potential new agent for sure. them and go through their spiel. And this is how I picked up on what people were doing. And if I hung up the phone and I felt like I had to take a shower, that was the red flag. There was kind of a <laughs> test oh, like, I feel so dirty right now. But if they seem too salesy, they're trying too hard, it's typically going to be a, a no-go.
1: What about I- you, Ben? I think the biggest thing is no matter where you're looking for a home, specifically with agents, but also on the W-2 side, you should be interviewing them as well. Like it's absolutely a mutual relationship. This is not one sided. You should go and literally ask every question that Nate has covered in here, right? Like what are your percentages? How long have you guys been in business? How many agents? For me, what I really would want to ask if I was going to, and this is how I actually met Nate, by the way, Nate tried to recruit me when I worked at that big brokerage. And that was actually how we ended up unconnected. (laughs) But regardless, that was why, like when I talked to him, I got recruited all the time and I never would return them because of exactly what Nate said. But when Nate and I did, what struck me was Nate understood the industry. Nate knew about other aspects of freight as well as a broker did. And for me, why I think people have done well in brokerage was because they had good mentors or good managers. I was lucky enough, even at the big brokerage I worked for, I had a really good mentor that supported me. It wasn't the other way around. And that's what I would be looking for in an agency is interviewing and making sure that like they know what they're talking about. They can provide the guidance that you don't have yet because of all the things we've talked about. Understanding how long they've been in business, understanding the other thing is, how quickly are they going to pay you? How are they set up, right? Are they cash flowing it? Or are they really just a new brokerage that is looking for you to do the work for them?
2: The, other, the last thing I'll add on, I don't want to go too long here with you with you there, Kevin. But uh, if you have a, you know, when, like Ben said, interview that company, you should absolutely be doing that. Ask the questions that are very specific to your book of business, Right here mm-hmm. I got this going on how how does that look with your company right how would you guys handle this those are the very important things to ask absolutely the
0: devil is the devil is in the details on, yes. on all of this and what I've learned especially in brokerage, if, if it's hard for them to the, the the company to explain their commission structure or who achieves <laughs> it or you know then yeah. that's a, that's a huge red flag but it's all these detailed questions you know yeah. how quickly do you pay Yep. You know? Yeah, how it's quickly like, oh, do you pay carriers? How quick, quickly do you correct? What what are your terms? Is it 30 days, 60 days? Uh, how do you float cash?
2: Yeah, you know? I've seen it's like the oh hey, uh, I heard you guys are paying 80% to start. It's like, oh yeah, but you have to be doing X amount of business to you know to get that. And oh by the way, we have a, a minimum profit dollar per load, and oh by the way, you gotta pay for your load boards. And, and you know you got to pay for mm-hmm. this, that, and everything, and so yeah, that that eighty percent that then becomes fifty percent all of a sudden doesn't sound so good. So
0: I know, right? It, it is really devils in details. So thank you both for 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 jumping on, put that coffee down. Thank you. Here today, it's it's been great, and we'll have you both on again to talk about navigating your way as a new broker into a large three PL because. Uh, there are strategies. It's, it's not simple. It's not simple to, to to build that book of business with small and medium sized shippers when all all the the, the good accounts are, are kind of claimed by other people. But we'll definitely do that. Uh, Freight three hundred and sixty podcast. You can download that wherever you download your podcast. Right.
2: Yeah. Yep. iTunes or Spotify. Spotify. And SoundCloud. Check us out. Freight check out dot our- net. Yep everywhere you
0: guys have been doing doing the podcast for a couple years now about a year and a
2: half we actually uh we're we're dropping episode 100 this friday nice Nice. well congrats
0: congrats on that uh but but it's always a pleasure talking to you guys thanks for thanks for coming on the 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 audio only podcast here put the copy down and uh we will catch you soon
1: always a pleasure kevin looking forward to it